guys have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 8 today, John chapter 8, and uh, stand with me this morning as we read the word together. Now, if you're reading the ESV, what you'll notice is that chapter 8 actually starts with the verse 53 from John chapter 7, um, and you may also notice that uh, in some of your Bibles, there is... Um, there is a note that says earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, chapter 8, verses 11. Um, so there's a big argument over that, but there are a lot of good reasons why uh, we for sure believe that this um, was part of the original text that was written by the Apostle John. The Bible says in verse 53 of chapter 7, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, because that's the way the teachers taught. They sat, everyone else stood, next Sunday. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, you guys are like, I've had to sit here for 40 minutes. Well, what about standing for 40 minutes? We should try that. Amen? <laughs> There's one person who clapped. Okay. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them, the scribes and Pharisees. So remember, uh, what feast is this? Oh, come on. Come on, church. Don't hurt my feelings this morning. Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles. Thousands of people gathered on the Temple Mount. All of a sudden, this scene breaks out. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Notice the, uh, the disdain that they had for this woman. So what do you say? This they said to him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, uh, because he ignored them, right? And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, by the way, John chapter 2, you remember that was a term of uh, respect and affection, not a degrading way to speak. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray together. And Father, we're so thankful today that we can reflect on these words. Thankful, God, that you sent your son. Thankful today that we know the heart of the Father. Thank you, God, that you've rescued us out of our darkness and out of our blindness. And you've delivered us from our sin. We have so much to be grateful for. So much to thank you and praise you for. Thank you, God, that you take us just as we are, but you don't leave us that way. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So if I were to say to you today, what do you think the most popular verses for Christmas or used during Christmas, what do you think that they are? You would say what? Say it, you just yell it out loud. Like a little louder. What's that? Yeah, a little louder. Say it nice and loud. John 3 is 16. I'm concerned about you guys. Luke chapter 2. All right, what else? Isaiah, Isaiah, maybe Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7, 14, right? I mean, Isaiah 7, 14 is the promise of, uh, of the incarnation. All right, not bad, not bad. Maybe not as good as the first service, all right? So you guys have just a little bit of work to do, but... Um, I think that probably those are all great answers. I think Luke 2 is typically the go-to uh, section of scripture as far as a preacher and a teacher goes for a Christmas message because it does lay out for us a, a really beautiful picture of the story of the birth of Christ. 
Um, I would say maybe second or third is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You guys know how this goes? And we shall call his name. All right, you guys, that's like a, that's a train wreck in slow motion right there. Like... Train wreck in slow motion, not bad. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. You guys know how that goes. Um, all right, we're done with that, okay? So just, <laughs> you had your chance, you, you missed it. But listen, Isaiah 9, 6 is amazing. Uh, obviously, I probably need to teach that this December. But a lot of people don't read verse 2, which gives the context for the coming of Christ. Uh, it gives the context of the culture or the society during the incarnation. And it goes like this. It goes... Uh, it goes, the people walked in darkness, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. So the people who walked in darkness, this was the culture, this was the society at the time, this was what Jesus was born into and what he ministered in. Uh, the people in the Galilee were walking in darkness, they've seen a great light, actually he is the great light. And the darkness was not just darkness, it was deep darkness. Now, if you're listening to a preacher, a teacher, of course, like, we know it was dark because of sin. Like, fundamentally, the darkness that he came to deal with was our sin. But oftentimes, you'll also hear uh, preachers and teachers talk about the oppression of Rome. You know, in fact, more often than not, uh, you will hear them talk about the political pressure, the political oppression um, the freedoms that had been stripped away from the Israelites during this time, and sometimes it might even be a little overemphasized, just the impact of Rome and how somehow that was contributing or maybe the cause for the darkness at the time. But I want to suggest to you that it wasn't just the political darkness of Rome that was oppressing the people. I think that it was the oppression that was caused by the religious leadership who had actually separated the people from God by using the law to oppress them. So I just want you to think about this, right? Yeah, uh, we know for sure sin was the reason for darkness. And yeah, you know what? Rome did contribute, but don't, don't misunderstand. Like part of the deep darkness in Israel at the time was this religious leadership that had perverted the law and used the law to oppress people and separate them from God. I mean, if you're the average person trying to deal with your sin and the system that's supposed to like lead you through the process of atonement is broken, where do you go? And this, I think, is maybe most marvelously revealed in this story because that's what's going on here. I think uh, many times we look at this story and rightfully so, man, we're centered on the woman and the existential moment that she was having and what she discovered in the person of Christ. But I just want you to step back for a moment and recognize from a religious perspective what was going on because these guys were bad guys. They were bad guys. They were supposed to be the good guys, but they weren't. And they concocted this plan, right? We're going to see in a minute that they were trying to trap Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. They didn't care about this woman. They were exploiting this woman. They had a plan that they were going to take a, a woman that had been found in the very act of adultery, and they were going to drag her up onto the Temple Mount, and they were going to publicly expose her in the greatest moment of shame. Now, it's a legitimate question to say, well, where's the dude, right? Because it takes two to commit adultery. And there's a lot of questions about that, right? I mean, some say, well, you know, he, he hightailed it out. He jumped out a window or whatever the case may be. Um, others say that there was such a deep misogyny during the time of Christ that the religious leaders let the guy go and they focused on the woman and exploiting her. And just understand today, because sometimes I think when we... Like when we try to picture what this looks like, you know, sometimes we picture it with rose-colored lenses. We think, oh, you know, they, they went and they got this woman and, you know, it was, she was totally compliant and, 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 you know, they got her all dressed up and gussied up and fixed up and they all kind of made their way and marched up to the top of the Temple Mount and they courteously and in a sophisticated way interrupted Jesus and, and nicely and don't think that that's what's going on here. Right? They ripped her out of this situation. 
they probably, like in a hurried way, covered her up and they dragged her, right? They dragged her up onto the Temple Mount. Like when Jesus is teaching and preaching as he's seated, the multitude, thousands of people, probably tens of thousands of people are gathered together and you could hear this. You could hear the the turbulence. You could hear the tumult making its way to where Jesus was teaching as the crowd parted, as this woman is dragged, as she is exploited in this moment. I mean, it really was, I'm thinking like Southern California term here, it was a gnarly situation, all right? It was a gnarly situation. See it for what it really was. See these guys for who they really were. The religious leadership at the time of Jesus viewed people as a means to an end. They didn't care about the average ordinary person. In fact, you see that because they use this woman. They have a total disdain for her. You can hear it coming through when they said, well, Moses, according to the law, said that this is how we should treat such women. They never sacrificed for the people. They sacrificed the people for themselves. They twisted God's word for personal gain. They were more concerned with justice than they were mercy. And they leveraged a religious system to establish and maintain power over the people. Like that, that was part of the darkness that, de- that Jesus was dealing with when he was incarnate and when he was ministering. In fact, I think God was speaking through Ezekiel about these false shepherds when he said this. He said, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. The truth is this, there was an unbelievable darkness that was hanging over Jerusalem and Israel during the time of Christ, which makes the words of Christ in these verses even that much more meaningful. Like, remember with me, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and there are all of these emblematic aspects of the feast that were significant for the people at the time, but they were pointing to something more powerful. They were prophetic pictures. You remember last week we talked about the ceremony of the water pouring. Do you guys remember that? Yes. Okay, great. Just wanted to get enough yeses there to move on. And you guys remember how the story goes, right? Seven seven days they celebrated this feast. Some people say it was eight days. The last day was the great day of the feast, the eighth day. There's no point in like talking about that argument. But every day the priest would take a golden pitcher and would go down to the pool of Siloam with a procession of people, people singing songs. He would dip the the pitcher in the water, come back up and pour it out on the altar. And you remember, this was emblematic. It was looking backwards to the rock that was poured out from the water, satiating the thirst of the Israelites. But what they didn't know, it was also looking forward to the Messiah. And you remember, the last day we talked about this, as the, the, the priest came up, some say the high priest, walked around the altar three times, poured out the water. There was a moment of silence self-evaluation, introspection, and at that moment, he stands up and he says, if anyone comes to me, out of his or her innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You remember that last week? Well, there was another ceremony during the Feast of Tabernacles that was emblematic, significant in a symbolic sense, and it was the ceremony of the lights. And we know that every night, On the Temple Mount, some say it was in the court of the women, there were four candelabras that were lit. And some say these candelabras were huge, like 75 feet high. And they would light these menorahs, uh, and they say, historians say, that the light would not only light up the Temple and the Temple Mount, but it would light up all of the city of Jerusalem. And so, listen, emblematically, of course, we're looking backwards. They were looking backwards to the faithfulness of God as the children of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. You remember, it was a pillar of fire that went before them. 
It was a pillar of fire that lit their way. It was a pillar of fire that protected them. It was a pillar of fire that uh, warmed them and revealed the things in the darkness around them. And with that in mind, this is what he does. He stands up on the Temple Mount on this early morning and he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Amen. Like you see this light, and this light lights up the temple, and this light lights up the temple mount, and this light lights up Jerusalem, but I am the light of the whole world. Jesus illuminates the whole world. Like you guys know, this is the way that our eyes work. Um, We're able to identify things and make things out because of light. So there's a light source. Uh, As the light shines, it enters into your eye. Your eye sends those signals to the brain, and your brain processes the information. And that's why you're able to make things out. And it's not just light from the light source, but as light reflects off of physical things because of the texture, because of the substance, as that light reflects off those things and goes into your eyes, that data is also converted into information. So without light, you see nothing. Without light, you are absolutely blind. Well, in a spiritual sense, it's true as well. He is the light of the world. You and I walk in blindness until we set our eyes on the Savior, and he reveals all things. I I think I've mentioned this to you. Sometimes every now and then I'll wake up at night and, you know, if I'm hungry, I'll go downstairs and get something, you know, from the fridge. And um, some time ago, I got up, I was hungry, I went downstairs, I didn't turn the light on, didn't want to wake anybody up, and I grabbed an apple. And I started eating the apple, right? And as I'm eating the apple, I'm like, man, something, something's just not right, you know? I mean, because I like my apples crispy and sweet. Well, this was just, the further I you know, dug into the apple, the mushier it got. But it was dark and I couldn't see, so what I did is I turned the light on. And when I turned the light on, what I recognized was that the whole core of the apple was rotten. I'd been eating, I know. And it was rotten because there had been a worm inside that had been eating the apple before I ate the apple. I know some of you wanted lunch after the message and that's not happening now. But listen, I I didn't realize, I I could intuitively tell that something was off, but I didn't realize until the light was turned on just how rotten the apple was. And when Jesus came on the scene, the people didn't realize how rotten the religious leaders were until Jesus was there, right? And the woman didn't see the depth of her sin until she was standing before the light of the world, who revealed to her that not only was she a sinner, but that that she was in, in, oh, wow, all right, That, 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 that she was, it's a little... You thought Brandon was a rapper. <laughs> two, guys, two white guys can rap, all right? I'll just tell you, tell you right now. <laughs> but that she was in need, she was in need of a savior. You don't know that you're in darkness until you see the light. You don't know that you're in darkness until you see the light. Like, when I put my trust and faith in Jesus, I was so grateful that he saved me, but I did not realize how deep the darkness was. And then as I grow in the Lord, I realize on a progressive basis, God, I was more lost than I thought I was. But thank God that you transform me and change me and shape me into your image and that I'm not the man that I used to be. This is what light will do in your life. Jesus comes on the scene, and you'll see these three things. Number one, in this story, he silences the religious lies. He silences the religious lies. The second thing that he does is he illuminates the heart of the Father. And the third thing that he does is he sets a sinner free. Yes, he does, does, Stephen. And so there he is. He's teaching, right? He's instructing. The tumult happens. There's turbulence. This woman's being dragged. I'm sure... You know, she's not happy about the situation, and it's known. She's thrown right there in the midst of everybody, and they think, man, we've trapped him. We've got him on the horns of a dilemma because, because this man is a champion of the poor. He's a champion of the needy. He, he is someone that the common person identifies with. He's a blue-collar religious leader, right? And so, 
So if he says, you know what, you guys are right, the law says she's committed adultery and she needs to be stoned right here, if he says that, he'll lose favor with the common person. The common person will say, hey, wait a minute, maybe he's not with us, maybe he's with the religious elite. And then on the other hand, if he If he confirms mercy and rejects the law, then we have an opportunity maybe even to put him to death because he's denied the law of Moses. And so Jesus, knowing what these guys are up to, right, this is not his first rodeo, he just does not say anything, he just writes on the ground. He just writes on the ground. Now, he is going to write on the ground twice. It is an interesting Greek word uh, for wrote or write, graphe, it means that he's not scribbling And it's not finger painting. What is it, you say? Well, what was it that he wrote on the ground? We don't know. Um, It's possible that Jesus, in the dirt, was writing out the sins of these religious leaders. You know, I mean, he just, one by one, Joseph, you know, greed, gluttony, lust, uh, Simeon. And just one, you know, he could do that today, right? You know, Jesus can use technology too. He could, he could, right up there on the screen, your name, your sin. How, how would you like that? Would that that'd be a bad exercise for Sunday morning, wouldn't it? So it's possible that, we don't know, but it's possible he was writing things out and that was what convicted these people. Some say it was uh, scripture from Jeremiah 10, which deals specifically with self-righteous hypocrisy. Um, some people say, well, he was probably writing the Decalogue, he was probably writing the Ten Commandments because the last time we see the finger of God writing was on Mount Sinai, where the finger of God wrote on two tablets of stone, and he gave the people the Ten Commandments. Now, the fact is, we don't know what it was that he was writing. What we do know is that they were deeply conv- convicted by what he said, and this was what he said, let him who is without sin among you be first to throw a stone at her. In other words, their self-righteous double standard was exposed as they demanded this woman be condemned for her sin. Their self-righteous double standard was exposed as they demanded that this woman be condemned for her sin. And while they're standing there, and I just want you to think about this, right, because they've come locked and loaded. They, they came with a stone. They were ready to contribute to this woman's execution. And as he says this word, in some way, allowing time to pass, so the Spirit of God is convicting their hearts from the oldest to the youngest, they drop their stone and they leave. Now, some say, why was it the oldest first? And and my, my view on this is it was the oldest first because the older you get, the more sinful you realize that you are right? This is the way it should work. You know, you've had more time to sin. You have, a, you, you have less of a tendency to see your life through rose-colored lenses. And so when the Spirit of God brings the conviction, there should be a greater tendency for the older among us to repent first because we've got a litany. We've got a litany of sin. The list is long. It's not a, we've not only had 10 years to sin, we've had 50 years or 60 years or 70 years. And so it might be that the reason was, was because these guys had a moment of honesty uh, among themselves. Whatever the case is, they all left. I love one commentator said it this way. He said, they slithered away. They slithered away. And I thought, man, that's cool. They did like snakes slither away. Hey, how do we kind of take this to heart today? I want to remind all of us, God doesn't save us so that we can can condemn others. God has not saved you and delivered you and rescued you and been merciful to you so that you can condemn other people. I want you to think about this up on the screen today. Choosing to be blind to your own sin while holding a standard for others that you yourself don't keep is a religious lie that misrepresents the heart of the Father. Like what really is at stake? You know, when we, when we as Christians forget the goodness of God and the grace of God and how far he's brought us. And we begin to hold a self-righteous double standard that's absolutely hypocritical, right? Where we have a standard for other people that we don't even keep ourselves. And then we put ourselves up on a pedestal and we sit in the place of God looking down our self-righteous noses at other people. Like, what is at stake? I'll tell you what's at stake. The heart of the Father 
It misrepresents the heart of the Father because when you see that type of attitude, when you see Christians comporting themselves in that way, it does not reflect God. In fact, Jesus was concerned about this with his own disciples. And so in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, he said this to them. He said, judge not that you be not judged. Now, Jesus isn't saying, don't be discerning. He's saying, don't put yourself in a position that only God can be in. Don't sit on a throne in judgment that only God deserves to sit on. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? This is a classic picture, right? Aren't we like this? Aren't we like this? Come on. Be honest today. Like we can pinpoint every inadequacy and failure and shortcoming in other people's lives. And the way Jesus puts it here is like, oh man, you know, we're so good at pulling the little baby splinter out of somebody else's eye, that little speck of dust, while we've got a railroad tie, a two by four, a plank protruding from our own face that we willfully, willfully ignore. We act like it's not there. And so Jesus says, or how can you say to a brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Thank you for coming to church today. You hypocrite. He doesn't say don't help your brother. What he says is there's a process here. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So there's a, there's a message here, right? What does he do? Before this woman can be really ministered to, he has to silence the religious lies about the father so the heart of the father can be illuminated. Here she is. She's caught, red-handed. She's publicly humiliated and shamed. She's condemned by the law. She's fearing for her life, and there literally for her is no place to run. Think about that. Here she is, caught in sin, publicly humiliated, condemned by the law, fearing for her life, and there's nowhere for her to run. And I just want to say to you today, she's us. She's us. Does that offend you today? She's us. This woman's us. She represents us. Now, maybe your sin looks a little different, and maybe the circumstances of your life are a little different, but we're in the same spot, caught in our sin, caught in our sin and condemned by the law. Hey, by the way, the purpose of the law was not so that you had some type of standard to live your life by so that God, at the end of the day, would be pleased with you. The Bible says the law was given to stop all of our mouths. We're all guilty before the law. It compels us to recognize that we need a savior. Paul said it this way in Galatians, the law's like a tutor, the law's like an an instructor. Um, The law helps us to understand there's a chasm between ourselves and God. There's a wall that we can't scale, that we can't break down. No amount of good works, no amount of philanthropies, none of that can solve the issue that obstructs us from God. But God dealt with the the law, God dealt with the wall, he tore it down when Christ was crucified on the cross and he bridged the gap so that we could have relationship with him. This is what Jesus did. He's the light of the world and he illuminated, right? He loved this woman in this situation. While everyone else was clamoring for condemnation, he silenced the religious lies. He loved this woman and he showed her the heart of the Father. He showed her the way that God really saw her. Maybe some of you need this message today because you know you're, you have all these mixed up ideas about how God sees you. And you know, you think that he's just waiting to exact justice on your life to, to, to strike you every time you step out of line. That's not the heart of the Father for you today. You say, well, what is the heart of the Father? We see it in Christ. It's a heart of mercy. The heart of God for her and for you is a heart of mercy. Jesus did not define this woman by her sin. The religious leaders wanted to. Right, The religious leaders wanted to define this woman by her sin, but Jesus did not do it. Um, Can I just say to us today, it is human nature to put people in categories. It is human nature to label people, but that reflects the worst of us. God doesn't want us labeling people or putting them into categories. There's only two categories, belonging to God and not belonging to God, right? Those are the two categories. And the purpose... 
that we have as the church is as saved people, as children of God, is not to look at the category of unsaved and criticize and condemn. No, we're on mission. We're on mission. We're out to get as many of those souls out of that category or kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. Mercy is Christ's faithful and focused love for us that drives him to compassionately help us in our time of need. And what a beautiful picture this is of that. The mercy of God is throughout the scripture. It was because of mercy that he spared Nineveh. It was because of mercy that he restored Peter. It was because of mercy that he interrupted Saul on the road to Damascus as he was looking to murder Christians and incarcerate them. It was mercy when God told David that he was going to build him a house. God has always been on a mission of mercy. And that's why he sent his son. John 3, 17 says this, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I'll tell you what, God's mercy takes you when you're at your worst. Doesn't, doesn't it? God's mercy takes... Don't, don't look at me with a, a blank look today because I know some of you. And I, I know, like I know what God pulled you from. You know, God's mercy takes us when we're at our worst. Like when we're at our lowest, when we have nothing to offer God, when it couldn't be any worse. I can't think of a worse place for a person to be in than this woman caught in adultery. Like she's not standing there waiting to make a sacrifice on the altar. She didn't come with religious clothing. She didn't just take the ritual mikvah bath. She didn't come with a, a lamb in hand to ask the priest to survey it to make sure it was sufficient for sacrifice. She was at her worst. And what she found when she was alone with Jesus at her worst was someone who was willing to extend her mercy. It was mercy that she discovered. You know, there is no pit that's so dark or so deep or so gross or so foul that God won't reach into it and rescue you. That's a fact. That's a fact. You know, some of us, you know, we, we, we might think, well, man, it, that's just too repulsive. That's just too foul. Like, God's too holy. He would never. And I would say the incarnation is a statement to us that there is no boundary on the mercy of God. The incarnation is a declaration that God will go anywhere and he'll do anything because there was nothing more dark and more sinful and more reviling than humanity at the time. And what did the son do? Well, the son left the glory of heaven and the adulation of angels and he came in the form of a bondservant in the likeness of a man and he lived among us a perfect righteous life and he died the death, even the death of the cross. The mercy of God knows no bounds. Today, don't sit here and think, well, you just don't know what I've done, pastor. I've made a mess of my life, my family's life. I got so much sin in my life. There's no way God could ever stop. Stop. That's a religious lie. That is a confusion that comes from the pit of hell. God's arms today are open to you. And there's, no thing, there's nothing that he won't do to rescue you. He's a merciful God. Amen. He illuminated the heart of mercy. He illuminated the heart of forgiveness. I just want you to think about this, right? What did Jesus, what didn't he do? What didn't he do? Here the woman is, and he didn't say, hey, listen, you know what? This is what you need to do. You need to get a lamb. Uh, you need, first of all, you need to put some clothes on. And then, and then go get a lamb, present it to the priest, um, and then you need to go through these steps. He did not do that. He bypassed the temple. He bypassed the sacrifices. He bypassed the priesthood. And he unilaterally for forgives this woman. He unilaterally forgives this woman because he's the only one who can. Did you know that he was also the only one who had the right to condemn this woman to death? No one else on the Temple Mount had the right to do that. He had the right to do it, and he didn't because he chose to unilaterally forgive her. God, God loves to forgive. God loves to send our sins away. This woman, in one moment of time, in like Old Testament terminology, had her sins buried in the deepest of oceans, had her sins cast away as far as east is from west, it's like the four men who brought their paralytic friend, right? They've heard about what Jesus could do, and they've got a friend who can't walk, and so they think, man, let's get him, let's get this friend of ours before the feet of the master. And so you guys know the story. They go through the whole process, climb the house, pull him up, 
tear a part of the roof off, lower him down. I'm not sure if like they stood up on the roof or if they rappelled down. Um, But I would imagine like if they're still on the roof, they're looking down. Here their friend is at the feet of Jesus and their expectation was what? Their expectation was a physical healing. And so they're waiting. They're waiting for the master to do the work and for their friend to get up. And then he says this. He's got the audacity to say, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And if you're the friend, you're kind of like, whoa, 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 pause. Just pause. We didn't just go through all this trouble, all right? This is a lot of work. Like we had to climb the house. We had to pull them up. We had to tear off the roof. And you're just going to say your sins are forgiven you? And, and the answer, well, obviously he did ultimately heal the man. But the most important need the man had was not the physical healing. It was the healing of his soul. It was the burden that he had been bearing on his heart that needed to be lifted from him, that nothing in this world can lift from you. Do you know that? Like we sin and the consequences of sin lay heavy upon our heart and you can try to numb yourself. I did this. You can try to numb yourself with alcohol. You can try to numb yourself with drugs. You can take the route of escapism. You can, you can pursue relationships and success and advance your own little kingdom on this earth, on this, on this earth, but that weight does not go away. The guilt and the shame does not go away. And the only one who has the power to send that away is Jesus Christ. And that happens when he forgives you of your sin. Today he's willing to offer that forgiveness to you. Remember, forgiveness is free, but it's not cheap. It doesn't cost you, but it cost him. The third thing that we see about the heart of the father is this. The heart of the father brings hope. The heart of the father brings hope. You know, this woman, this is what he says to this woman. He says to her, go, but he's not rejecting her. He's not like saying, hey, take a hike. He is giving her a brand new opportunity. There is a turnaround here in her life. We all love turnarounds, right? I mean, some of you don't realize this, but um, you've got your Apple phone, and you've got your Mac Air, and you've got all these, you've got your Apple Watch. Uh, but in the 90s, Apple was done. Apple was miserable. You would never buy an Apple product because it was just so bad until Steve Jobs came on the show and turned everything around. Uh, but, you know... What's greater than the turnaround of an amazing company? The turnaround of a single soul. The turnaround of someone's life. This woman's life was turned around. She went from that place, not dejected, but accepted. She went from that place, not with a label of sin over her life, but with an opportunity for hope. Someone once defined hope like this as an acronym, um, helping others pursue eternity. And that was her mindset now. Her life had been changed because she met the person of Jesus Christ. Today, maybe you feel like the doors have closed in. Maybe you feel like the cloud of darkness has settled on your life. Maybe you feel like the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel has been extinguished and there's no hope. And I just want to say to you, when God is in your life, there's always hope. Your story is not over. Your story is not over. But listen, you, let it, you have to let him do that liberating work in your life. Today, maybe you've made a a prison out of your own decisions. Today, I want to tell you that he's able to open that prison door. Maybe today you've enchained yourself because of, of sins and behaviors. I want to tell you today that he can break those chains in Jesus' name and he can set you free. He is present today to give you hope. The final thing this morning is this. Uh, The heart of the Father reveals truth. And so the Son illuminated the heart of the Father, which is a heart of mercy, forgiveness, hope, and finally, finally truth. I love the grace and truth that's reflected here in verse 11. Jesus says, check this out with me. He says, neither do I condemn you. We say amen to that, right? And then he says, go and from now on sin no more right? You have a beautiful representation of grace and truth. There's no tolerating sin here. If if the sentence would have ended with, neither do I condemn you, um, it would have left us with the question, well, what does Jesus think about sin? How does Jesus want us to live our lives? Did she just get a free pass to go back to the way that she had been living her life? And the answer is obviously no. What does he do here? He tells her the truth. There was no tolerating sin. 
There's no tolerance. I just had said to you, God takes us at our worst, but I got good news for you. He doesn't leave us there. God takes us at our worst, but he doesn't, doesn't leave us there. I want to put his words and my words today, and I hope it does it justice. What he's saying is, hey, this thing is killing you. He loved this woman enough to tell her, this thing that you've been doing, this behavior that you have been engaged in is destroying your life. And so what you need to do is you need to cut it out. You need to stop it because sin brings death. Do you know that today? Sin is pleasurable for a moment, but in the end, it always brings death. And sometimes we just need to hear the words of the master to tell us the truth in this regard. You know, if you went to a doctor and the doctor's like, hey, well, listen, I got some bad news for you. Um, you got cancer uh, and it's metastasized. It's, it's, not, it's not looking good, but here's a lollipop and um, enjoy your day and sent you on your way. You would think, what would you think? You'd be like, dude, that is the last time. That is the last time I'm visiting you again because you don't care for me. You've not resolved the problem. You've, you've not given me uh, any, any hope of resolution. No, you want someone who's going to say, all right, this is the bad news. The bad news is this, this is the diagnosis. The good news is this is how we're going to treat it. Because you know how cancer is. It metastasizes. And if it goes unchecked, if it goes undealt with, it will destroy a life. And sin is the same way. Sin unchecked destroys our lives spiritually, affects the lives of people around us. In fact, James says this in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Check this out. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by, by what? What's it say? By his own desires, right? I get people that will come to me and say, Pastor, you know what, man? It's just not good right now. I've made these decisions. And you know, it's my wife. Just my wife. It's a, it's, she's just, she's always on me and she's nagging me. And you know, Pastor, you know, you're a bro. You're a bro. Like you can only take so much. And, and, or on the other hand, you, you know, a, a woman comes into the office and she's like, she's like you know, my, my husband's a numbskull. He's a, he's a total numbskull. He's a scoundrel. I didn't have any other uh, option but to do this. Or people come in, they say, you know what, Pastor, it's just really tough. The world's never been so bad. And it's just influencing me. And, and because the world's so bad, that's why I've made these decisions. Or, or maybe the worst of all, someone comes in and, you know, there's, there's things that they've done that are obviously sinful. And they say, well, you know what, Pastor, it's really not my fault. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. And I just want us to remember what the word of God says, right? Because real victory, real healing, real restoration happens when we take real ownership for our sin. Like it's, it's not, I'm not saying life is easy. I'm not saying you're married to a gem today, all right? I don't know. But I am saying that when you and I choose to sin, it's not his fault, it's not her fault, it's not the culture's fault, it's not the devil's fault, it's our own fault, it's our own decision, it's our own choice. And the amazing thing is this, the heart of the Father invites you to come with all of that. Like it's a heart of mercy and a heart of grace. He's not looking to strike you down and destroy you. He's beckoning you to come to own your sin so he can turn your life around and get you going in the right direction. And you know, we all need this. We all need this. I mean, it would be a self-righteous, hypocritical, double-standard pastor that would say, this is for the rest of you but not for me. And that is not the case. I am the same as you. We all have struggles. We're all battling with our flesh. You know, we all are warring against sin and sometimes not successfully. Thank God we have a Savior, right? Thank God we have a Savior. Thank God collectively we can say, hey, we do struggle, but we're going to support each other. We're going to confess our struggles, and we're going to pray for one another and direct each other to the word of God, and we're going to march together as one through this life for the glory of God. You know, he goes on to say at the end, then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin, excuse me, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And I just want to wrap up today by saying this is why he came. He came... For that last sentence, we all need to be rescued. 
We all need to be rescued. When sin has its way, it brings forth death. He came to rescue us from that. He came to illuminate the heart of the Father. And this is what Christmas is all about. It's all about the incarnation. You know, we enjoy Christmas. We watch Christmas shows. I'm telling you, every single Christmas show I watch has had this phrase in it. Save Christmas, right? We got to save Christmas. Well, how do we save Christmas? Christmas... It's not about us saving Christmas, it's about Christ saving us. And that needs to be our message. Amen. I just want to close with that. Carry the message. You're the light of the world. Illuminate the heart of the Father. Mercy and forgiveness and hope and truth in Jesus' name. Yeah, and Father, we bless your name today, God, and we're thankful for this story that that it is part of your holy word and has meant so much to all of us. Help us. Help us, Lord, to receive all that you have for us and to reflect and illuminate your heart to the needy among us. Today, as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, I just want to simply wrap up today by giving you an opportunity to come to Christ. You know, this gospel message, the good news, couldn't be more amazing. And you've heard it today, and God's spoken to you today, and you have to know that the Father loves you. The Father's not out to destroy you or ruin your life. He is out to make you whole, to turn you into the person that he intended you to be, and that for all of eternity. Today, he is present to lift the burden of guilt and shame. Today, he is present to forgive you of your sins. Today, he is present to pour out his abundant mercies into your life. Today, he is present to lift the darkness, the hopelessness that you have felt and to pour real hope into your life. And today he offers this to you as a gift, as a gift to receive. His gift is his son. Today, the promise of the scripture is this. If you believe in the Lord Jesus And his resurrection from the dead, the Bible says, you will be saved. I know today there's somebody in this room, you, you need the saving work of God in your life. He's been speaking to you and calling you to come, and you need to make a decision once and for all. And stop blaming others for your situation and just own what you need to own before the Father. And believe in the Son. And you can leave this place with a a brand new life. So this morning, if this is you, God is speaking to your heart. And you know you need to put your trust and faith in Jesus today. You need Jesus. You need to receive him right now into your heart. I want to encourage you today to just stretch your hand up high so I can see who you are. I want to pray for you this morning. Raise your hand today. God bless you. I see your hand. That's awesome. Thank you. I see your hand here in the back, over here on my right. I see your hand. Just, I see your hand in the back. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Thank you. I see your hands. He's ready today to receive you. God bless you. Thank you. Don't be thinking today, I see your hand in the back, that you're too far gone that God would never have you. No, the heart of the Father right now is calling you to himself. Stop resisting and fighting and say yes to him today. Anybody else, just raise your hand. Maybe today as a Christian, you know that you're just, I I don't want to like define where you're at. I just want to say it like this. You're not where you're supposed to be. You're just not where you're supposed to be. 
that you fill, you fill the blanket for why that's the case. But today, sincerely, you need to rededicate your life to God. You see this story and you think, man, that's, that's really the heart of the Father for me. And he's calling you to be all in today. Today, Christian, if this is you, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you today? Thank you and thank you. I see your hand over here on my right. God bless you. I see your hand here and your hands here in the front. Thank you so much. I see your hands. Oh, God loves you. I see your hand in the back on my right. He's never stopped loving you. He's a faithful father. He doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. You can put your hands down. Father, we bless your name for each of these today who, who are being ministered to by your spirit. God, we ask that the work that you do in these lives would surprise, would astound. God, would be miraculous and extraordinary. All, oh God, that you might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you guys. Excited for that, for what God's doing in your life. Today, today, if you raise your hand, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer, okay? And God has spoken to you today. He's touched your heart in some regard. Today, you need to pray. It's not about some spiritual leader in the church just praying for you. No, God wants a relationship with you through his son, one-on-one. -on -one. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to invite you to come forward. God, touch your heart and you raise your hand. I want to lead you in prayer. You need to pray. Maybe it's for the very first time to receive Christ. Maybe today you're recommitting your life to Christ. Whatever the case may be, as Pastor Tony leads us in a song of worship, stand up right now, come on forward to the front, and give us the opportunity to lead you in prayer. Okay, I'm going to lead you in a very simple prayer, and I want to encourage you to pray this prayer out loud after me. It's a, a prayer of repentance. For all of us, we have to own our sin before God. It's a prayer of confession, confession of faith that you believe in Jesus and, and that you're receiving every good promise that he brings with him. And so today, I want to encourage you, pray this prayer out loud after me. Father, thank you for loving me. And today I confess my sin before you but I'm believing in Jesus and through him I receive your mercy and I receive your forgiveness and I receive your hope and I'm choosing to live by your truth fill me with your Holy Spirit in Jesus name I pray all God's people said Amen. Amen.